Well, may I extend Matt and Pete's welcome to you all this morning. Uh, and I suppose most of you will know me by now after Matt's introduction. Uh, but as Matt said, I grew up in this church. Uh, I'm so grateful for the many people here who were discipling me as I grew up. And it's such a blessing to still enjoy fellowship with you all, even from Winchester, where my wife and I now live. Recently, we moved house and foolishly believed that between viewing the property and seeing all the amazing estate agent photos, that when we moved in, everything would look the exact same. Now, that was not the case. Uh, with all the furniture removed for the first time, we could see the floors, the walls, and the ceilings, clearly, warts and all. But the most surprising discovery for me was the garden. I could not believe that in just four months' time, the neatly presented garden we saw moving in had become this sprawling jungle. And there's one particular bush in our garden that tests my patience like no other. It's a great massive thorn bush that I'm convinced somebody is feeding miracle Grow. Um, when dealing with this bush, you might find me muttering under my breath. I put on multiple layers of clothing to avoid being pricked, and I just sit there wondering whose idea it was to put a thorn bush in that garden. Of course, thorns weren't always a part of creation. In Genesis 3, where we read the account of the fall, we see that as punishment for sin, the ground itself was cursed. Instead of flowers and fruit, the ground would now bring forth thorns and thistles. And in even worse news, Adam and Eve will no longer live in perfect harmony with their creator, but eventually return to the ground from where they came. The New City Catechism describes the consequences of sin in this way. Sin results in our death and the disintegration of all creation. We see the effects of this all around. Yes, as I struggle with thorns in the garden, but even more seriously in the devastation wreaked by earthquakes and hurricanes. We see it as we struggle through physical pain and illness, and we face the loss of loved ones. The effects permeate further. We feel the strain of difficult relationships. When we watch the news, we can't help but feel despondent. And internally, we wrestle with the darkness of our hearts. We are broken people, and we live in a broken world. What hope is there for creation, and what hope is there for us? Well, the title of this morning's message is Refreshment in a Broken World. And as we turn to Acts 3 to see why, Luke is going to share with us a miracle and a message. Those are our two main points this morning. And in the miracle and in the message, we'll see a glimpse of creation restored. We'll find the comfort we need to live in the brokenness of now, and we'll be reminded of the glory of our future. So then, point one, the miracle. At the close of Acts chapter two, we're told that many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Whilst Luke doesn't choose to describe every one of those wonders in detail, in Acts chapter 3, we get dropped right into the very heart of one. Let's read our passage this morning, starting in verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. 
And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The narrative starts out quite ordinarily. We're told in the previous chapter that the believers were attending the temple together day by day. But it's the introduction of the next character that draws our attention. We hear of a man, lame from birth, carried onto the scene and laid at the gate that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms. We don't use the word alms very much, but essentially all the man was asking for was food or money. His positioning at the gate was very strategic. This beautiful gate, likely adorned with precious metals, would have attracted lots of foot traffic, maximizing the number of people that would cross this man's path. And what better foot traffic than pious Jews on their way to and from prayer? The timing is lining up perfectly here. Peter and John are on their way to the temple, right as this man is being laid at the gate. And it's the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and so thousands of devout Jews are gathering, unknowingly about to witness a miracle. When the lame man sees Peter and John, he asks for their charity, just as he asks everyone else. But when Peter and John actually turn to look at him, rather than diverting their gaze and hurrying by, the expectation of getting something must have dialed up a notch. Here's where something extraordinary happens. Peter fixes his gaze on the man and says to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. We're told that immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. There's not even room for doubt in the lame man's response as Peter hikes him up. First the man walks, possibly cautiously, as they enter the temple but soon he is leaping and praising God. What we read here is no natural phenomenon or human-powered spectacle. This is nothing short of the Lord of creation outworking a life-changing miracle. As faith in Jesus' name is exercised, the very work of his ministry on earth is continued through the apostles. Just as Jesus' incarnation ushered in the kingdom of God, so also this healing signifies the advent of a new age, a new age that was foretold long before in the scriptures. The same word used to describe this once lame man now leaping is used in the Greek manuscript of Isaiah chapter 35. In it, we read this. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened up and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This once lame man has experienced something of the new age that Jesus has to offer. 
And being given the opportunity to leap like a deer, he immediately runs into the temple to worship God. Now, at that time, the man would have been excluded from entering the temple. That's why he's on the gate before the way in. His lameness would have been seen as a ritual blemish, preventing him from entering a place of purity and holiness. But the healing he has experienced in the name of Jesus has enabled him to be welcomed in. Notice how this healing aligns perfectly with the acts of Jesus before his ascension. So many of Jesus' miracles helped to bring the marginalized into the fold of God. He dared to touch and heal lepers, and he healed the bleeding woman who was considered unclean because of her sickness. In one example described in Matthew's Gospel, we see that despite being excluded because of their ailments, the blind and lame enter the temple to come and see Jesus. Rather than send them away, he heals them there and then. Jesus is the one who meets all the requirements for holiness and purity, and as such, he has the authority to welcome anyone into God's presence. Jesus is in the business of restoring broken people into right relationship with their maker. The healing of the lame man in Acts 3 has implications for us too. It points to a bigger, grander spiritual truth. Like the man, we are completely and utterly unable to improve our own condition. Because of our sin, we are cut off from our creator and cut off from his presence. We need saving and we are helpless to save ourselves. But this man, healed in the name of Jesus, is the proof we need that Jesus can bring renewal and restoration to us and to the whole of creation. In my weekly job as a product designer, we have to prove all kinds of things. People will come to us with an idea, sometimes ludicrous or laughable. And before anyone will want to buy it or even consider it, we have to prove that it will work. So, we create a prototype or a proof of principle that demonstrates the idea. It's not the final thing, but it gives people confidence that the real product will do what it needs to do. In the same way, we might doubt Jesus' ability to change us, but he's proved that he can. The man leaping to his feet again is a prototype and a foretaste of, that Jesus can transform the whole world, including your life, and my life. But how exactly does this work? How can we be transformed? Peter goes on to explain the how in his message, which is our second point. So, the message. Let's read again from verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Now, as expected, this miraculous event creates utter commotion in the temple courts. You can imagine the sheer wonder of the worshippers gathered there. The same man they saw day in, day out as they entered the temple, lying lame at the gate, is now leaping around. So astounded are they that they run to find out the source of the miracle. And because the lame man is clinging to Peter and John, all eyes are drawn to them. Now, instead of seizing this moment as an opportunity for self-glorification, P 
Peter seizes it as an opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Immediately, he displaces the attention from himself and focuses it onto Jesus, just as he did in the previous chapter. In Acts chapter 2, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was the wonder that platformed Peter to his message. Now in Acts 3, against the backdrop of another miracle, Peter begins his second. Let's continue to read together now, starting in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. In his message, Peter begins by appealing to his Jewish audience on the basis of their shared belief in the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of their fathers. This same God that the temple goers are here to worship is the God who glorified his servant Jesus, whom they delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Now, the gathered crowd should have been fully aware of the significance of this phrase, his glorified servant. For them, it would conjure up the servant songs of Isaiah, where we read in Isaiah 52 verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But that's not the only fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. No, Peter's audience were also responsible for the promised rejection that God's servant would face. Isaiah 53 continues, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted by grief. Not only was Jesus the suffering servant, he was also the holy and righteous one in verse 14. These names, holy and righteous, are messianic terms, pointing to the fact that Jesus was God's Messiah come to save God's people. The people had been eagerly waiting and expecting the Christ, the Messiah. But shockingly, when he came, they chose a murderer in his place. In ignorance, they asked for the one who had taken life to be released to them and instead killed Jesus, the very author of life. But death could not hold him down. Despite what they had done, God raised him from the dead and the apostles are there to bear witness to it. And here lies proof. The same resurrection power that raised Jesus has made this man strong in the presence of the people. It was not by Peter or John's power or piety, but by faith in the name of the resurrected Jesus, the holy and righteous servant, the author of life, who has ultimate authority over death and sickness and sin. As Matt touched on last week, we cannot distance ourselves from the part we played in the cross. Though, unlike Peter's original audience, we weren't geographically or historically located at the cross, 
we too have rejected God's holy and righteous one. By our sin, we necessitated his atoning work on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So, what does God have to say to this group of Jews responsible for the death of his servant? And what does he have to say to us, whose sin it was that drove the bitter nails that nailed him to the cross? As we return to our passage, hear these words. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. It's almost unbelievable what we read. How can this possibly be God's response to those who were responsible for the death of his son? We might expect an unconditional announcement of judgment on the guilty or the fullness of God's power to punish the people there and then. But this is the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. In an incomprehensible act of peace, he extends forgiveness to them through the offer of repentance. Repent, and even this sin the sin of the death of God's Messiah will be blotted out, wiped clean. Do you have a guilty conscience this morning? Have you walked in here unable to imagine that God could possibly forgive you for the sin in your life? At times, I find myself wondering how God could forgive a sinner like me, so prone to fail again and again and again. But see here, brothers and sisters, the extent of his mercy. If he is willing to forgive the very ones who took part in the crucifixion of his son, then yes, he is willing to forgive you. Do not imagine for a second that you are beyond the reach of his love. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Because Jesus lived a perfect sinless life, because he died on that cross, crying out, it is finished. And because God declared the utter effectiveness of his saving work by raising him from the dead, those of us who have repented and put our faith in Christ can boldly say this morning, my sins have been blotted out. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed my transgressions from me. We could just stay here and marvel at this one truth, but... The gospel offers more. Peter goes on, repent therefore and turn back, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That word refreshing has a sense of recreation behind it. And here we see another link between the healing of the man and the healing that the gospel brings. The Lord who can bring refreshment and recreation to the physically wounded and broken can bring refreshment and recreation to the spiritually wounded and broken. David knew what it was to find refreshments in the presence of the Lord. In Psalm 16, he declares, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Hosea, too, knew what it was to encounter refreshment in the presence of the Lord. Oh, that we may, might know the Lord, 
Let us press on to know him. He will surely respond to us as the arrival of dawn or the coming of rains in early spring. And as we read this morning, and as our Lord Jesus put it best, as he invites us into his presence himself, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you feel a need to be refreshed this morning? Are you struggling through this world of thorns and thistles and death and decay? Then turn your eyes from the concerns and comforts of the world and turn them to Jesus. Rest in Christ. Lay your burdens on him, for there is great relief for the weary soul in his presence. And remember the joy of the man. He was leaping. He was rejoicing. And that is the kind of joy we can expect when we repent of our sin and hear from the Lord, it is forgiven. Those words, it is forgiven, will refresh your soul and bring delight to your heart. We can join with the hymn writer and say with confidence, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And look at verse 21. Look at what we can expect in the future. The restoration of all things. The recreation of the world starts with the recreation of our hearts. This promised future restoration breaks into the present when we repent. It breaks into our very hearts. And what happens in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus will one day happen across all of creation. The paralyzed man was physically refreshed. Those who trust in Jesus now will be spiritually refreshed. And one day, the spiritual and the physical will combine in the recreation of all things when Christ our Lord is sent for us. But this last gospel promise comes with an expiry date. There is a time, we are told, fixed in heaven when Christ shall return. And depending on how we respond to the gospel, this will either be glorious or terrible. For those who have repented, we will see the glory of the risen Christ recreating all things. As we have seen the first fruits in his resurrection, and as we have seen the preview of his new kingdom in the lame man leaping for joy, so also we will see his new creation without sin, without pain or sickness, without death. But for those who have not turned from sin, and for those who have not listened to Jesus and his call to follow him, verses 22 to 24 come with a warning. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. What we read here is that for those who do not know Jesus, his returning glory will bring about destruction. But if that's you, there is still time to respond to the gospel right now. Jesus hasn't returned yet because God is patient, desiring that all should repent. God is inviting you to know him, to know the peace of sins forgiven, the refreshment from his presence and hope for the future. 
If you want to find out more, please come and talk to me or the person you came with at the end of the service. We would love to talk to you about Jesus and share the new life that he can offer. The miracle and the message of Acts 3 give us a glimpse of the restoration that Jesus will bring about at his return. The once lame man, healed and now able to leap like a deer, in part fulfills the prophecy from Isaiah 35 that we read earlier. Derek Thomas writes this, the coming of Jesus Christ ushers in the beginning of a process that following his return at the end of the age will accomplish the complete fulfillment of this prophecy. The spirit of God poured out on the church at Pentecost is a spirit of restoration. Jesus, the last Adam, came to restore the world from its current state of disintegration and sin to its former state of beauty and glory. We have a great hope for the future, great hope for the restoration of all creation. But that should not leave us despondent for the here and now. No, this too is a time of great blessing. Peter finishes his sermon with these words. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God, from the beginning of human history, has been calling a people for himself. It is his covenant promise by which he means to bless all the families of the earth. What is this blessing? It is the opportunity for repentance and turning from sin. It's the comfort of forgiveness, knowing that our sins have been blotted out. It's the ability to find rest and relief in our Savior amidst the brokenness of this world. And it's the sweet experience of the presence of the Lord but with us by his spirit. He who is at work recreating our hearts will one day restore all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you that this healing of the lame man in scripture was recorded to encourage our hearts and to bring us great comfort. We praise you for the sure and steady hope we can have that one day Christ will return to restore all things. Oh Lord, may we eagerly await this day. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to live as your people in a world of pain and suffering. May we often ponder on the sweet truth that our sins have been blotted out and may we often draw near to you to find refreshment in your presence. And as Paul prayed for the church at Thessalonica, so also we pray. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen.